0: Papa, the story of Gordon Hockheiser. a young man torn between his love for mother and the urge to
1: kill her. Sid, you have ten minutes. If you're not here by then, I'm throwing her out the window. Welcome, welcome. This is our first Intercontinental Edition. 70 movies we saw in the 70s. I am Mike McPatton. I am uh, the author of Teen Movie Hell and Heavy Metal Movies. Uh, my regular co host in Madison, Wisconsin, is Mr. Ben Reiser, if I do say
0: so myself. Uh, I work at the University of Wisconsin Madison at their UW Cinematech program and their Wisconsin Film Festival.
1: That's me. <laughs> And joining us across the puddle, as some of us see, is...
2: Oh, I've got to introduce myself now. <laughs> I don't have to do that on our podcast, what Mike. Do you think, what do you think we're not paying you for? My official biography is educated rabble, foul mouthed every mother's worst nightmare, and hysterical feminist.
1: Um, yeah, Cat uh, and I host Busted Guts, and this is sort of... Um, yeah, this is a Venn diagram where uh, these two podcasts are meeting, and uh, very excited because our second episode, which I thought was just friggin' fantastic, uh, launched just a couple of days ago, where we talked about Lord Love a Duck and Heather's and Massacre at Central High. And uh, Ben just told me he was inspired to watch Lord Love a Duck.
0: Well, I'd ne- i I want to let's talk about that right now. I'd never seen it. Yeah, and. Something that I don't think came up in your conversation, and it was actually funny because Cat kept apologizing throughout the podcast for having never seen it before and didn't know how. Uh, <laughs> but, but but talking about what an American film it was, and wasn't sure if it even got released or how much of a but but. Anytime I'd ever heard the title Lord Love a Duck, I immediately assumed that it was a British film because it's such a totally British turn of phrase that I always assumed it was a British movie. That and the fact that it starred Roddy McDowell, who until this week I didn't realize moved to the states when he was 12. I always thought that McDowell oh, really? was yeah was over in the UK yeah. for until he got sucked into Planet of the Apes. I don't know. He never <laughs> lost his accent. But but cat doesn't 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 lord love a duck to you doesn't that seem like a british thing and not a, a not a us? The
2: title maybe yeah yeah the title I get what you're saying obviously it's a very american film though when you see it. But yes but right yeah but Just, i also wonder
0: it made me think are we supposed to what are we supposed to think of Roddy mcdowell's accent in that movie? Is he supposed to be like – do they use it to be more of more of an effect of him being some sort of an outsider or alien presence? Or are we just supposed to think that that's his American accent?
1: Cause they, it's, yeah, it's interesting. I think they just dropped him in because everybody knew Roddy McDowell at that point. He was almost 40. <laughs> yes. And they're like, well, here he is, a 17-year-old kid with well, a British well, accent. Yeah, well,
0: what was he most famous for at that point in time? Because that's
1: pre-Planet of the Apes. Uh, Well, as a child star How Green Was My Valley And being Liz Taylor's friend Right I think he was just always around
2: He did quite He did quite a lot of Hollywood stuff though Before that Okay What year was Lord Leverduck?
0: It was earlier than I thought 66
2: Yeah, 66 So yeah Yeah. He went off to Broadway At the end of the 50s For a bit He took Ah. a break And then he came back in Midnight Lace With Doris Day Where he plays this weird pervert neighbour Yes He's great in that and then yes. he was just sort of slapping around Hollywood in slow. He did loads of stuff, didn't he? Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, I actually thought Lord Love Duck was helpful a little bit for context, even for today's podcast, because I feel like I was trying to think, where does Where's Papa come from? You know, does it have any does it have any precedent? And you know, I thought, okay, it's sort of, a, it, it, you know, it's probably in conversation with the producers um but maybe maybe lord loveduck is 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 almost as dark in in the way that lord loveduck is sort of in conversation with lolita uh,
1: who knows i don't know maybe there's more i would agree than- with you and i i actually wrote a bunch of notes on oh, that good. topic i think um I think it comes out of the black humor literary movement of the mid-60s. And, you know, we just lost Bruce J. Friedman, the great uh, satirist and father of two tremendous talents, Drew Friedman and Josh Allen Friedman. Um, uh, Drew is uh, the world's most brilliant uh, caricaturist, and Josh wrote the book Tales of Times Square, which is amazing. And... um, Yeah, Bruce Jay uh, published... He edited the short story anthology Black Humor in 1965, which collected, uh, you know, what had been called... With Lenny Bruce, they had termed it sick humor. Before that, it was gallows humor. And uh, the term black humor, I actually found out, was coined by the surrealist Andre Breton. And um, he had actually published his own collection of black humor before that. But... um, so, Because I was thinking, like that uh, Where's Papa to me would be the ultimate outgrowth of that over several years um, from Lord Love a Duck and The Loved One, which is a movie that I would always pair with Lord Love a Duck. Um, And also, yeah, Kat and I talked about doing those two films or or that and The Loved One and Where's Papa as, you know, making the mainstream safe for John Waters. Like, these were really outrageous, bad-taste Hollywood productions that kind of shocked the audience into being prepared for to whatever degree pink flamingos i don't know
2: anyone was ever prepared for pink flamingos no 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 no. and and still they still aren't now
1: no still no it's still like the chicken scene i can't watch (laughs) (laughs) and you know the singing asshole just died oh he just died that that scene to me that shocked me more than anything else in the movie I was like 13 years old and I was like I had to go to the hospital while I was practically <laughs> So um, You know And I think all that I think black humor Led to National Lampoon Which was founded in 1970 The same year as Where's Papa And the crucial uh, Element that National Lampoon Brought to Society As P.J. O'Rourke said um, That prior to that You know Especially after World War II American humor Had been Jewish Humor in nature and the message of that essentially is "Oh, woe is me." And then once National Lampoon kicked in in the seventies, the, it became something more English and Irish. And the essential essence of that is "Oh, woe is you." <laughs> yeah, well, that's interesting because I do think I do think of "Where's
0: Papa" as the ultimate ultimate New York comedy, but more and more than that, the ultimate New York Jewish comedy.
1: Clearly, yeah.
2: Well, it's very woe- That's why we wanted to get an Anglican. It's all the woe is me, isn't it?
1: Yeah. Well, I think it's also a woe is you because it, it sort of paints a world where everybody woe is... Woe is everybody. Some kind of insufferable <laughs> monster.
0: Well, it's one of those things, like we talked about a few weeks ago... Um, Well, we were talking about uh, What's Up Doc and Howard Hawks uh, saying he regretted, and the the reason he thought that bringing a baby had been sort of a box office failure at the time was because... He, everyone in the movie is insane, and there's nobody that you can relate to. There's no sort of average person that you can anchor yourself to, which I think is, I mean, maybe that was the reason it wasn't a financial success. I think that's one of the reasons that it's as brilliant as it is. And I think
1: that. That we remember. Right? And I think it, yeah, that that's yeah. the. And, and I think the same yeah.
0: thing is true about Where's Papa and um, and The Jerk. And, and, you know, most of my favorite comedies are yeah. really like. Um, right. Everyone's everyone's crazy. Every every single every background player seems as insane as as the characters, are. especially <laughs> so in true. Where's Papa, where for the first time I noticed that Penny Marshall is sitting there in the in the courtroom scene in like the front row. Oh,
1: I didn't notice. Well, she was married to Rob Reiner yeah.
0: at the time. Were, were they married that that early on in '70? Well, they might have been hot and heavy. I don't know exactly. But, yeah. <laughs> Um Okay, so yes.
2: Actually, it's interesting you bring up the screwball because it does have those screwball elements. Screwball was all about cruelty, wasn't it? Yeah. Which is why at the I time... I never
1: thought of that, but yeah. Well, <laughs> at ready. the time,
2: your screwball <laughs> comes along just after the Haze Code. So right. and Molly Haskell actually wrote this amazing essay on, you know, what is it about the screwball? Talking about... How you know from a feminist point of view obviously sure. and her theory is that you know obviously when the haze code came along they couldn't have sex anymore so sex turns to aggression it becomes this very covert sexual aggression so you get the wow. kind of um it's an amazing essay it's in a book by oh, I can't remember it's it is it's, it's the intro to a book about screwball I'll have, to, wow. I'll have to look it up. That's such an really interesting good.
1: point because what comes to mind when you say that is how sex has been scrubbed from movies, Hollywood movies, yeah. certainly now, and replaced with this insane level of violence. But yeah.
2: well, I don't know if These... why we get that now, but it, with the screwball, obviously, it functioned. Yeah. It was like a covert way of getting sex right. in there. But because of that, at the time, when you read reviews of screwball before it was defined as a genre, so when the critics didn't know what was happening they just saw that films had shifted and comedy had become very aggressive, very fast paced Mm. and they couldn't really work it out you get that, and I love the screwball I'm researching and writing a book on screwball but you get this kind of the critics who thought comedy should be sophisticated they hated the screwball so much (laughs) They were like, you know, what's going on here? And there's one very prominent critic who I won't name. Who, <laughs> uh, in his in his writing on Lubitsch, uh, the one screwball that Lubitsch did Bluebeard's Eighth Wife, he just really. He's like, you know, he was too good for this. Which I love Bluebeard's Eighth Wife. It's Gary Cooper and Corda I was going to say, do you
1: have a special connection to that
2: film? I just love it because it is just... Well, it's about sadomasochism, really. It's about two people who drive each other insane. And... You know, and I know we talked about doing it on our podcast next to War of the Roses. So it sort of sets that precedent. But you see that in a lot of screwball, the idea of couples trying to get back together. That's very true. The Awful Truth is another one where Cary Grant just makes an absolute pain. And I love that film you know, splits up with Irene Dunn because he's jealous and then he is basically stalking her and, you know, pretending to see the dog, but he just, you know, wants to get her back. So there is that thing, I think, you know, where's Papa is just the more uncensored version of the screwball in a way. Because in Screwball, that was the problem critics had with the screwball was the fact that people did things that weren't very nice and they treated people they were supposed to love in a not very nice way and some of Carrie Grant's roles in that he'd always be really jealous and passive aggressive and you know and they didn't like it and it's that but like kind of really exaggerated to you know almost John Waters if they'd had that right, right. F- the ending they were supposed to have had. <laughs> <laughs> hey, there any, have you, have I either of seen you that, the...
0: that alternate ending? I no. was desperately no. trying to
1: find it online this week of, of Where's, the, Papa. Uh, Where's yeah. Papa. Yeah, I saw it when I first saw the movie in
2: 1979. So it was um, on it? It was with it? Cause I couldn't yeah, yeah, find on it in...
1: WHT, which was Wometco Home Theater which was a pay service that uh, my family didn't have, but uh, a kid I knew named Darren in Keensburg, New Jersey had it. And uh, we got to go to his house and watch uh, Where's Papa? And it definitely had that. Now, again, I may be imagining this. Because yeah, we know about, about you, Mike, in your... <laughs> I've talked about filling in the sodomy scene that doesn't exist in Ode to Billy right. Joe. So yeah, I may have put the mother son incest scene in there, but I swear I remember. But no,
0: it, it does exist, and I think it's on. It's on the Blu-ray. Blu-ray. Yeah, I'm just was yeah. depressed to find that it wasn't on YouTube because I don't think I've ever seen.
2: Um, I feel like like a bit of a fraud being here, because I didn't see it in the 70s. Obviously, I was six in 1980, so even if I had
1: seen it, I wouldn't have have understood it. No, 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 no. That's just a hook. We just needed a catchy name. I
2: watched it literally like a couple of weeks ago. Because Mike just kept... Like Lord Leverduck, which was another Mike. These all come from the mind of Mike, which says a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, oh, you've got to see this f- film. And I couldn't believe that I hadn't seen this either. Given well, that when You only saw
0: Where's Papa for the first time a couple of weeks ago.
2: A couple of weeks That's ago. Fantastic. Because I grew up on The Jerk, The right. Man With Two Brains, right. and Dead Men Don't Wear Play. Me and my dad watched those films over and over and over and sure. over. And I'd never seen Where's Papa? Where's Papa? And Mike was like, oh, no, you've got to see it because Ruth Gordon. I think because we did Lord Duck, wasn't did, it? And yeah, it was Ruth yeah. Gordon. And you were like, oh, yeah. have you seen it? And, yeah, it kind of went from there. And I was just – it's become, like, my new favorite thing.
0: Yeah, well, I have a, oh, I have a friend that I went to um, high school with and is on Facebook, and I see him. And he posted um, – a list of movies that the Turner classic movies is showing at the end of this month to, as a tribute to Carl Reiner. Um, and he and it's a list of like, they're showing like six, six or seven movies in one day and it's enter laughing and the comic and where's Papa. And, um, uh, I don't think the jerk. I can't remember. Oh God! And then all of me and something else. And and then my friend wrote, um, uh, I wouldn't have picked any of the. And he's like, has, was was like paying all kinds of Carl Reiner tribute all week long on his Facebook posts. You know, he was like, Carl, you know, Carl Reiner was the best. Blah 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 blah. Then he has this list of movies. Says I wouldn't have. Personally, I wouldn't have picked any of these to represent Carl Ryan. Well, first of all, how many more movies did he make? And so, and I, so I, I wrote to him, I said, you don't acknowledge Where's Papa as his directorial masterpiece? And this guy says, I used to walk out on it when it was constantly paired with Harold and Maude on the revival circuit. To be fair, that's largely because I just don't like George Siegel and I haven't tried to watch it. Woo! <gasps> In close to 30 years, <laughs> so I'm definitely going to give it another chance. So for, for, my mind was blown because I'd never heard of anyone who expressed any sort of dislike of George Siegel. How do you not hey, like George Segal? How can
2: you not like George
1: Siegel? Like, and how, how can
0: you be a Carl how? Reiner aficionado and, and <laughs> have never bothered to see Where's Papa?
1: It's uh, right. You know, everything led to Where's Papa and everything proceeded forth from Where's Papa.
0: Then <laughs> then my mind was equally blown when I read the New York Times uh, review of Where's Papa from 1970. This guy Roger Greenspun. I don't even know. Have you ever read a review by this guy? I don't even know who he was. He was like the. I know yeah. the name, but I didn't know he wrote for he the time. He was like third. No. Th- he must have been third or fourth string on the New York Times, and he gives it an okay review, but he says um, he's complaining all over the place about Ruth Gordon.
1: Um, <laughs> what?
0: I'm trying to find. I fucking highlighted everything and like, my... Don't
1: go to see the Ruth Gordon movie uh, uh, or assign that reviewer. He
0: says, all of the performances, except for that of Miss Gordon, who continues to play old age without conviction, are pretty good. <laughs> I mean, what are you...
1: <laughs> <laughs> without <laughs> conviction.
0: You. Fuck you. Roger Green. Good Lord. <laughs> Baffling. So um, I, I, nothing surprises me anymore. Somebody giving Ruth Gordon a bad review in this movie and somebody saying they don't like George Segal. I don't Don't, like George Segal.
2: I just can't. I love George Segal, which is why I'm doubly, I'm just doubly annoyed at myself for not seeing this. Oh, no,
0: it's a great, think of how great it is that you just are experiencing this. I've been sending people
2: clips of it now, like just randomly (laughs) and saying you've got to see this, like the courtroom scene. Yeah. And and yeah. the and the scene where she talks about the husband shitting on the bed. Oh my <laughs> in fact, God. I had to message you about it, didn't I? <laughs> it's yeah. interesting. I mean. Those are the things
0: that I thought of in my because I probably hadn't watched it for ten. 15 years and before i watched it again this last week i thought those were the things that in my mind are the sort of the most dated elements that don't work like i in my head the rob reiner thing was just this total sort of <laughs> didactic like <laughs> like you know rob ro- just sort of being really like sort of like speech making and like you know the hippies handing it right. to the, but but watching it, i was like oh no this is this is right on this, this doesn't feel dated at all right now. And actually Rob Reiner's performance is much more sedate than I remembered it being like, he's not over, he's not being overly hammy or anything. He's just sort of
1: sitting there oh, and rattling great. it off. Um, he's also dressed like snake, the biker he played on uh, the <laughs> Partridge family. Yes. Yes. I thought, Oh, cool snakes in the movie, <laughs> yeah. but I love that scene. And I love how it turns into like medium cool yeah. at the end. Yes. Yeah. When he starts. freaking <laughs> <Yeah>. out. <laughs> it's great.
2: I, I, with no like, because I didn't read about it before I read it, and I was giving Mike a commentary as I was reacting to it. Because I was like, "This yeah. is the funniest yeah. shit I've seen in a long time," and I'm hard to please when it comes to comedy. And I was just like, you know, even like just from I thought the opening scene when he's dressed up as that gorilla, yeah. that got me. And then I thought, oh, it's it's probably not going to get his, you know, that's probably the high point. End. Right. <laughs>
1: It just keeps ramping up to Ron Liebman in the park. But (laughs) I do
0: love that opening and I love that it starts with and this is a New York thing, that it starts with that Rambling with Gambling.
1: Rambling with Gambling Which again
0: reminds me of the Lost in America opening with Rex Reed, where it's somebody waking up to this radio thing. Uh it really made me want to go find some old W R radio broadcasts online and listen to some rambling with gambling.
1: Um he was... Uh, so John Gambling Cat and his father... Yeah, I'm before lost him and then his son. Okay. So they were a New York morning radio dynasty. And it was very... Um, you know, it was just very pleasant. It was just talk of the day and restaurant talk and things like that. But they were hugely popular. And that immediately is a blast to my childhood it's that was just constantly but wrong. it
0: is funny hearing it now how subversive they sound because they totally didn't come off that way at the time but they're sort of commenting yeah. on the news and being sort of right. like you know snippy about it and, and sort of having fun with the, with the, with some crime yeah. stories and I also love that at the same time that that's happening the uh, he's also set this other alarm for himself I think or does he actually manually turn on that record player and and that turntable and start playing the classical music which if, if without the brief insert shot of that classical music you almost think that it's non-diegetic music that's happening and it actually works that way because you sort of forget that this thing that he was also playing music while he w- wakes up and so for the next five minutes as he's shaving and he's in the shower you're hearing this great classical piece and I was like oh wait this is actually in the scene this is actually like a record
1: that right. he's playing I
0: love that that's all
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, that's great. Yeah. So, uh, you know, usually we walk through the movie, and I don't think I want to do that because I want people Aww, to see okay. it, yeah. and I don't want to spoil right. it, but we could do it a little bit. Well, do you. Um, can so you we t- just, we're, we're doing this as a tribute to Carl Reiner,
0: so do you, yeah. is there anything you want to say about Carl and how he. Do you know anything about how he wound up making this movie? <laughs> oh, me.
2: Oh. I like I said, I Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks. If it hadn't been for those two, and this was because of my dad, and as I've already discussed with Mike, my dad, even though he's very British, he subscribed to Mad Magazine. You know, so I had access to that he, when I was a kid, and would often read about films in Mad Magazine that I'd never get a chance to see, like that right. Exorcist issue. Um, sure. And he was a huge fan of Mel Brooks and obviously Carl Reiner as well. And so I'd watch horror films with my mum, but it was always comedies, or mainly comedies with my dad. And we'd always watch The Jerk. The Man With Two Brains was probably the main one, the one that, and I still know every line of dialogue, every everything from that film. And then Dead and Don't Wear Played, which I haven't seen for a while. I want to go back and see it now. It's at a hmm. Blu-ray, but that had such an effect on the films that i would love later on and you know if it hadn't have been for carl reiner i think if i hadn't had i don't know they were like obviously because i must have been about seven six seven eight maybe when i was watching those films i think they were probably my first exposure to black comedy right before i started watching things like the young ones and stuff like that that were on tv here But it seemed so unlike anything that was coming out of British comedy at the time. Um, Apart from the TV stuff, I mean. To do with film, we didn't really have much of a comedy thing going on in film. It was all the carry-on films from the 60s and the 70s. We didn't really have our own thing. We didn't really have the teen sex comedy either. So... You know, if I hadn't have been exposed to those, I don't know. I don't know what I'd be into now. But they were definitely like formative. That sure. and Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks as well. You know, which we would just we would just watch them over and over and over. And you know, it's just really I just. I don't get sad over celebrity deaths, but that one did kind of... For sure. You know, because it's like the end of an era, isn't it? It's like... Yeah. You know, and I, I know he was really old and that, but a couple of days before, we'd seen that picture of them at Mel Brooks' birthday. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, wow, you know, they're still going strong. And, you know, so you just... Some people you think are going to be immortal, and then they're gone. And it's just, right. you know... saddest thing so and then you know obviously without Carl we wouldn't have Rob so that's another whole ever thing as well so yeah I think American comedy would have been very different without him and and Mel. Uh,
1: What's interesting to me about Carl Reiner and uh, Where's Papa is that I have wondered, and you talk about being in conversation with the producers, was this the result of a rivalry between him and (laughs) and Mel Brooks? Because it's like, Mel dropped the H-bomb. It's Hitler. So it's like, what am I going to do? So it's this war of attrition where it keeps getting sicker and sicker and sicker. Even just watching it again today, I forgot that... um, Sidney attempts to strangle his own child to get his wife yeah. to leave him Yeah, I'm going to kill your kid. The great Ron Liebman in one of the craziest performances that's ever By been By the done. way, that's Ron
0: Liebman's screen debut. Ron Liebman yeah. was a grand old 33 at the time of this movie's <laughs> release. And so he's... I, I, you know, I, I think that Ron Liebman wore a toupee for much of his career, but I still am not positive that we're seeing his actual hair. I feel like they might have shaved some of his hair off. and, that, and It looks like that Friar Tuck
1: yeah. uh, bold <laughs> spot there. Yeah. Um, you know, I met Ron Liebman once uh, briefly at uh, backstage at the Broadway musical version of Xanadu, which was really fun and funny. He and Marilu Another thing Henner,
0: about that New York Times review is they don't even mention Ron Liebman, and it seems unfathomable. To walk away yeah. from this movie to yeah. write a review about it and not mention Ron Lehman, who gives, I mean, one of the most incredible comic performances, I think, that's ever been put on film.
1: It, in a scene, I mean, all leading to that one moment <laughs> that nothing has been
2: like in cinema
1: before or since. No. <laughs>
2: And it's, are we going to Are off. we going to yeah. say what that moment is? Are we going to? Uh, what do you say? What do you think? I think we should. Think? I can't. I think
0: Cat's got to be the last okay. one who hasn't seen Where's Papa. Who's listening <laughs> okay. to this podcast?
1: So, all right. So let's walk through oh, the movie. Because I got bit, so though. much take stuff, stuff to say about so. it. Yeah, go ahead. All right. Good. So my first note is that George Siegel's mustache yeah. is funny. <laughs> um, so the story is that uh, Ruth Gordon is Mama. And she's 87 years old and senile and constantly asking where her dead husband is. And she is the terror of her son, George Siegel, who is a really put upon and exhausted lawyer. And he is fantasizing about throwing her out the window and he attempts to scare her to death by dressing as a gorilla. Yeah, can
0: I say, we, we spend fits. those first five minutes, we don't know, uh, you know, it's just George Siegel walking around right. this apartment, getting ready for his work day. And all of a sudden, he puts on this gorilla costume and i would i just love the idea of people seeing this movie for the first time and not having any idea what is happening right
2: well like i right. did cat right. <laughs> you're a
0: perfect <laughs> it's
2: catching yeah. your memory <laughs>
0: uh, and and when he arrives on her bed to scare her and she punches him right in the balls i mean it's just a what a fantastic <laughs> way to start a movie <laughs>
1: And it is a long setup into that. It's, it's great. so worth. I mean, it, it builds such to that punchline.
0: Uh, but, but Ruth um, Gordon, here's what I want to say about this movie in general: is that what works so? What makes this movie work so perfectly is that nobody is really playing into the comedy. They're all playing it straight. They've all got. Right. This film is full of fantastic visual gags, but also full of fantastic lines of dialogue that they all just sort of throw away. Like, Ruth Gordon doesn't enunciate right. any of the things that she's doing. She just casually says great shit, like, like she's complaining about the nurse who pinched her, and he's like, she didn't, she didn't pinch you, you pinched her, and she goes, oh, that's right, I like to pinch her. And she just sort of throws that line away. <laughs> <laughs> and Ruth Gordon has this thing, and I've seen so many Ruth Gordon movies in the last month for various reasons. She acts with her hands in a way that I've Never seen any other like you know some some actors act with their eyes or their mouth or whatever, but Ruth Gordon has like a hand acting style. She's got this weird claw and she's <laughs> always using it. You know she's very sort of Jewish New York expressive, but she's got a very distinctive way of using her hands at all times in the, in this movie and all her other movies. It's fantastic
2: actually yeah she, she knows does she does that in rosemary's baby now you mm-hmm. think about
1: yeah. it yeah oh all the time yeah, yeah. oh and, and
2: constantly now that you
1: say harold and Maud, she's always yeah her hand is <laughs> always no, going on she acts with her hands ruth gordon and I don't know if you know this, Kat, but uh, Ruth Gordon shot a movie inside Ben's childhood home.
2: No, I didn't. I found a picture. I don't know if
1: I sent this one to you. I did find
0: a picture. I'm in you Dubrow's yeah. diner with her, and I'm standing three feet away from her. It's so great. It's like i got to get a blow up of it and make a poster of it. They shot
1: she and Lee Strasberg in the movie uh, Boardwalk, no which way. we covered on this podcast.
0: I've never yeah. I can't believe you Ben's haven't home. seen Boardwalk. <laughs> <It's> a- <No. laughs>
2: yeah. Well, I hadn't seen where's uh, Popper, so yeah. there you
1: go. Yeah. A boardwalk is a few notches more obscure. <laughs> uh, just a few. For various just a few. reasons. Uh, so that's set up, and then uh, we see the madness of the situation. He prepares breakfast for his mother and pours Pepsi into a bowl of uh, Lucky that's Charms. That's indelible yes. to
0: me. What an indelible yeah. uh, delicacy. Yes. I have never forgotten that, that Pepsi into the Lucky Charms. Wow.
2: It's the way he does the whole scene, though, with yes. this sense of quiet desperation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so even when <laughs> yes. he's trying to kill her and she kicks him in the balls and then thinks it's a joke, <laughs> it, the whole time he just has this expression on his face like he's giving it. But it's also... And it's yeah. just...
0: You also get the they also really sell the idea that this is their daily routine. That this is something that has yeah. happened a thousand times and will happen a thousand yeah. times again. They have this whole dance worked out and it's so beautiful. You really feel like, Oh yeah, I'm just watching their morning ritual with the orange slices. So and I would everything. like
1: to uh, insert, insert an aside here. So when I was watching, where's Papa with this kid, Darren and this other kid, Mickey, who was my early good friend, he said to me, That scene with the Pepsi was a rip-off from a short film that they showed on WHT occasionally called The Fat Film. And he said it was nothing but a fat lady came on and just poured (laughs) like soda into like ice cream and just gorged herself on stuff. And it was like a gross out short. And uh, I put that up there with uh, Aaron Lee's uh, friend who described the Texas Chainsaw Massacre as about a bunch of lumberjacks that run wild in Dallas. As, uh, I believe Darren was uh, just sharing have what you was ever, Have say. you ever tried to research the fat film? Uh, kind of the entire, yeah, since I was 11 years old, I've been trying to find the fat <laughs> film. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. So, uh, yeah, and then we are introduced to Trish Vanderveer as the nurse, and it's um, the very funny flashes of fantasy used very effectively here, akin to how Woody Allen would do that where uh, George Siegel sees her as a bride, he sees himself as a knight, and Trish Vanderveer, the wife of uh, George C. Scott from 1972 until he died. Uh, Just a brilliant. She and she looks so beautiful in this movie.
0: Again, like Barbra Streisand and What's Up, Doc. It's like this is Trish Vanderveer at her most beautiful and sexy, (laughs) even when she's telling the story of her honeymoon. Also, weird. She's like this
2: weird, innocent character, like Bernadette Peters in the though, isn't she?
0: They both, both of these characters, her and Bernadette Peters, they dress like like Catherine Hepburn in. african uh the african queen um right, <laughs> they're right. so they look like they're from like another time period they both seem like they yeah, stepped out of the 20s or 30s. Yeah they're weirdly misplaced
2: weirdly misplaced when you see Bern- Bernadette Peters was this time in the in uh, the jerk she's wearing all, looks almost like period costume you think yeah. what's that about and they they're very very similar sort of like she's been through this terrible experience with this guy that she marries who (laughs) (laughs) and the lead up to that is amazing, just the way she tells this story. You know, it was beautiful. We we got to Paris. We had this amazing honeymoon you know, and then it just and then I looked over on the bed. And but yet she's been untainted by this traumatic Experience and then all her patients dying as well. On top of that, <laughs> I mean, this is the thing
1: this is the war of attrition. It's like, how much bad taste can we just layer and layer? But, um, but, um, and her exact line is, He made a caca on it,
0: and I love how angry George Siegel gets immediately upon hearing that. Oh yeah, son of a bitch <laughs> so so but, but talking Talking about movies that this movie's in conversation with that, that her speech Reminds me so much of The story that Rosanna Arquette tells In After Hours oh, Yeah, sure. and yeah If this yeah. is the ultimate New York Jewish comedy um, I feel like After Hours is like The second place, not the Jewish part of it But the ultimate sort of New York comedy yeah, and, sure. and certainly must they must have been Thinking of Where's Papa throughout some of that Stuff in, in After Hours
1: I never thought of that but yeah No I real.
2: never thought and After Hours is one of my favourite comedies of all time so yeah it is a bit like Rosanna Arquette in this strange sort of you get this sense that she might be a bit unhinged Well but she's also well. got yeah, that it's, it's, But she's got, the, horrible,
0: she's got yeah. her own crazy story about being married to somebody who, who did yeah. the whole Surrender, Surrender Dorothy yeah. Surrender <laughs> Dorothy Yes. But Mike, I totally agree with you also about those little flights of fantasy that we see, and it's one of the really impressive things about this movie is how far they're willing to go for like a three-second gag. I mean, for literally three seconds, right, they right. brought a horse, a live horse, into that office. You know, <laughs> yeah. they could have just dressed George Siegel up as a knight in shining armor without the horse. It would have worked just right. fine, but they went the full nine yards.
1: With- Completely. So, alright, so then uh, Trish and George hit it off after the caca story and... Uh, he comes home to what I wrote is the most uncomfortable dinner scene <laughs> prior to the Texas Chainsaw match.
2: Well we get the courtroom scene in between those, don't we? Uh,
1: I think that it was.
2: Oh yes, I apologize. It was, it oh, yes, I right, apologize. Yeah. So right, it gives yes. you the like the, the guy that. shitting in the bed. And you think yes. that oh my god, you know. Right. And then you and then you get the courtroom scene right. and yes. then you get this um Which I think is one of the funniest scenes in the whole
1: film. The courtroom scene? And that's all based on, yeah. I mean, it is shocking just based on the language. And even in context, certainly, where you think this is 1970, we've only had R-rated movies for two years. But the ludicrousness of the story, which is that this hippie, Rob Reiner, (laughs) was harassing a military man (laughs) and failed to tell his lawyer that he cut off the guy's toe. And uh did you know and Rob Reiner apparently was the first person to say cocksucker in a commercial American film.
2: Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs>
1: his his pop gave him that honor. So
2: But it is it is insane because the whole setup on that as well is like the hippies against the this that you know they've they've you think he's insulted this old man for wearing right, a medal right. and they leave it to, you know, get the thing that they... And then he took off his shoe and moved his sock and then he <laughs> cut off his toe and you're like, what? But then after yeah. that, this guy starts giving this sort of monologue about the people he killed in Vietnam and how much oh he'd done, God. how he brought this yes. mummified head back for his kid. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, insanity, but also incredible. I don't think... Yeah. I think anyone coming to this today without any... Especially, you know, I think I saw that the same week they tried to pull Faulty Towers off. Oh, right. Streaming because of the Germans episode, which, it, you know, in the Germans episode, you have a joke in there where the major... I can't remember the exact joke, but it's it, it uses the, the word nignog or coon. It's this... And, and people oh, my God, you know, you can't have that on streaming for the BBC. But the joke is that this major is just this ridiculous colonial twat. Right, right. Who, you know, you're <laughs> yeah. not supposed to be laughing right. because... You're not rooting for him. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. just like, this guy is ridiculous. Same with Basil faulty doing right. in- impressions of the Germans. It's the Germans are actually shown as sane and... You know perfectly respectable people it's basil faulty you're not supposed to wish you were basil faulty so i saw (laughs) this like the week that and i I believe they've put it back now because john cleese kicked off about it but they're they're getting rid of till death do do us part they're getting rid of all sorts of stuff i think because people can't handle nuance anymore so if you try and describe the scene to someone without the context All the nuance, just the fact that they're using the word gook over and over again. Right. Um, People, oh my God, that's terrible. And you could see there being a potential backlash to it, when actually what it is doing the same thing, it's exposing this generation of, you know, I'm this respectable guy and this guy insulted my medals and cut off my toe, but actually he's like a mass murderer who lined up 15 people f- with a surrender flag <laughs> and blew their heads off. It gives this description of, you know, how one guy Blood fell into guts. pieces yeah. and, you know, yeah. and it's so not that, but I wonder how it would be received... You know in today's cultural climate because they just hear the language and you know go oh my god we can't have that you know that's terrible but I just thought it was wonderful just wonderful to see something so free (laughs) as well and just so you know out there and kind of semi-political as well
1: oh sure for sure yeah um, so then so then we meet Ron Liebman, who is Well hang on, Christine's I want to just ask you this one question.
0: <laughs> Mike, you're never going to
1: get through this yeah, description please. of this movie.
0: <laughs> All right, that's good. So he brings <laughs> he, he decides he's going to bring Trish Vanderveer home. For, she she's insisting. She wants right. to meet Well, he's basically hiring her as a nurse, right? right? And 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 the, yes. they Right. After and the courtroom scene, they cut yeah. to a scene where they're already hanging out in the apartment together, uh, but he still hasn't introduced her to his mother. He has a mother locked up in her bedroom. <laughs> he's got there. <laughs> uh, there's nothing better than when he, <laughs> she says, let her out of the room. And he goes, okay. And he grabs a hammer and she doesn't know why he's. <laughs> He says it, st- it <laughs> sticks sometimes, uh huh. Um, but he's trying to like prepare her, and he and he says she's old, and then he keeps repeating the word old. And I don't think I don't think in, there's any point in this movie where they use the word Alzheimer's or dementia or senility. No, Those no. words are never used. He's trying. It's almost like he's playing that password game with Trish Van where he keeps saying old to try to get her to say senile. <laughs> yeah. um, but it brought yeah. up a question for me I've always interpreted this movie As yes she has dementia But she's also crazy like a Fox Ruth Gordon There's like a, there's like a deliberate mayhem That she uh, is foisting oh, upon Oh it's,
2: it's definitely yeah. deliberate sure. it's And I think that makes it a million
0: times Funnier it's... and that's probably the key To the success of this movie yeah. Is that it's not just that she's senile And de- and demented She is like a vicious malicious Mother towards
1: George right. Yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> have you two guys ever seen Steptoe and Son?
1: Mm-mm. No, I'm dying to. See,
2: yes. it's very, very like Steptoe and Son. And I said, oh, we didn't have, you know, sick comedy here. But actually, Steptoe and Son is really perverse when you think about it. Right. And, and the joke is you've got old man Steptoe uh, Wilfred Bramble. And his son, he's played by Harry H. Corbett, and they run this Scrap Merchants thing. Oh, it's They're like and so They San- live in right. right,
1: they right. Live it's, the, in it's, the, it's the original
2: version. And yeah. and the son is always trying to leave. Like, he's always trying to have a date, and he just wants to get away, and he just wants to escape. And his father is just so, he's like, he uses emotional blackmail. He will do right. anything to wreck his son's life. And Harry H. Corbett is just totally ends up resigned to it. He just, you know, he wants to kill his father. He just says loads of jokes in it about, you know, if he thinks something's wrong with him, he's all like, you know, cheers up. And it is a similar thing to Steptoe in that way, where it's completely deliberate, but it's more obvious in Steptoe and Son. It's like, like, ruth gordon really underplays that aspect but the whole ass biting thing in that that's not the behavior of someone with senility that is she she just wants to mess up his dinner date she's horrible
0: and and, and when she's left alone with trish vanderveer she totally shuts down and is totally fucking with trish vanderveer she wants nothing to do with her she won't answer her questions she uh, it's fantastic
1: she pretends uh, to think she, that he that she's yeah. uh, George yes. Siegel. Yeah. She calls her, her Gordon. Um, and, and then yells at her and says, you
0: told yeah. me you were Gordon. Yeah. It's so great. It's so fucking great. And let's not forget when yeah. George Siegel finally o- pries open the bedroom door and gives Ruth Gordon a pep talk. And, and he says, uh, this girl is really important to me. And I want you to know if you mess this up for me, I'm going to punch your fucking heart out. It's just just such a great (laughs) one. And, and, you know, delivered so perfectly, which is how, you know, this whole movie proceeds. Like, people find dialogue, which seems to be, there's no way you can say this and make it, it's so over the top and fucked up. You know, it's either going to feel like it's too much or people are not going to laugh because it's so nasty. But... Every single actor in this movie nails their lines in, a, in in just the most perfect way. And you've got to give credit to Carl Reiner
1: for that, yeah. along I with all they, these actors. Yeah, he found a pitch that everybody got on. And everybody just—it's it, a perfect note throughout the whole thing. So let us talk about Rod Liebman. Rod Liebman's debut as— uh, The uptight brother who's married, has a kid. Is henpecked. Tries to strangle the kid to get his wife to leave alone. (laughs) Um, And he uh, lives across Central Park. And we should talk about... So Central Park in the 70s. From the 60s to the 90s. At night, Central Park was a war zone. And it was just... It was the source of humor. It was the source of... I mean, you know, death wish is all about that. And uh, so he runs into some of the denizens of Central Park at night, which this, I mean, I can't imagine a modern audience dealing with this business. Uh, anything about those guys in the park. One of whom is Garrett Morris from Saturday Night Live, so good to see him.
0: Well, can I just say that this this brings up another devastating um, shortcoming on the internet these days. Uh, impossible to believe to me, but YouTube does not have a music video for that You Better Move It song, which has to be one of the best music cues in all of film history. Mashed Potato Gonna Hook Your Ass. I mean, (laughs) have there ever been a better lyric in any song ever? And, I mean, I would rewind this movie when I had it on VHS just to listen to that song, like,
1: 20 times in a row. (laughs) So they, uh, they ask, uh, Ron Liebman, if he's familiar with Cornell Wilde and the Naked Prey, and he says, uh, "No," he says, "Well, <laughs> great line. Yeah. You're gonna, you should start praying because you're gonna be naked." <laughs> and they chase him through the park and rip off his clothes. And I, a personal aside, if I may. So, in 1993, I moved to Los Angeles. I was kicking drugs. I was clean about three weeks, and I was working at Hustler magazine. And I had lived in like the worst hellhole neighborhoods in Brooklyn. Now they're all like billion dollars Like Melina Dunham lives in that shit But um So I thought LA was as it said you know Swimming pools and movie stars. So one night, uh, this is my first week I went to a midnight movie on a Friday And I was like yeah I'll just walk home I'm In West Hollywood I was like I'll just walk home I lived in Hollywood And a homeless guy jumped me Beat the shit out of me in front of a strip club While the bouncers were all cheering And a bunch of homeless people were like What fuck <laughs> And I said to him, like, I said, I got no money. What do you want? He goes, I want you to strip naked and run down the alley
2: Only this so could happen I, to you, Mike.
1: Oh yes, yes, I did. I, uh, I did not adhere to that. But I, but this scene gave me a fresh flashback when I watched it again recently. I, I managed to escape, uh, and I just ran. Somehow I flagged down a cab, which is a miracle in Los Angeles. So. But yeah, that was my first weekend. You
2: didn't have to run around in the gorilla suit then.
1: No, no. I mean, I, I wanted to, but I didn't have and to. And of yeah. course,
2: all that is the setup for the second part of the joke, which is. <laughs> I don't even know how to discuss that. I don't know, and, and
1: this is where we get into like beyond John Waters territory. <laughs> yeah. Without like the graphic nudity or violence, but or the, I feel
0: like that somehow still. So, um, I, I, I feel like they pull it off. I, I know you say you can't believe a modern audience. Oh yeah, oh, they totally I, pull it off. I think I think yeah. it's 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 a real sign of how in control Carl Reiner is, and the writers and the cast. They seem to know. I mean, they step way over the line. I mean, there's this insinuation that these guys have, yeah. mildly, to put it, <laughs> to put it as strongly as I can, mildly coerced Ron, Ron <laughs> Liebman into raping who they think is just some woman who was walking through the park. And it goes, to, it, it cuts to black just as Ron Liebman begins the act of rape. And this is a comedy. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. first he gets excited to yeah, do no, it. Yeah, they, they're, you know, they, they, they sort of talk him into it, and it doesn't take much. You know, he's revved up.
1: Uh, oh. And he goes, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's my first rape. It's my first one. And they leave you hanging, and I have uh, to
0: believe that if they were worried about anything making this movie and editing this movie, it was, how long can we leave people hanging before we... Get to the payoff before we before we show them before we tell them what the what the happened in the rest of the scene, and the answer is they don't wait long at all. I mean, I was watching this time specifically, saying how long do right. they leave this? Ha-? I couldn't even remember that they left it hanging at all, but they do. There's was like a brief scene, uh, like where uh, well he calls George Siegel because he's at the he's in jail and he hasn't come down, and then when George he's, Siegel comes down, he explains what happens now. The explanation, the sort of payoff and the gag of it, is that any more? Is that any less outrageous than the the implication that he was raping someone?
1: It's way more outrageous. (laughs) It's it's the one thing you can never say regarding this type of crime, which is that the victim enjoyed it so much he sent. Oh, well, so we should say. We also, it's interesting, we don't see the woman, we see legs.
2: Yeah. It's like, carry her over like, so, like so a mannequin. <laughs>
1: so that, I think, also takes some of the sting out of thinking, oh my God, this is an actual human being. We then find out that this was a decoy cop, which was a very big thing. A male, thing in the a male cop. A male. men did dress up.
0: Yeah. It's a, which it's a I do guy. think, I think yeah. all of that is built woman, in the yeah. 70s or in 1970 to take the sting out of all of it because it becomes this whole other joke. Yeah. And I yeah. don't even really think that it's a... Uh, I don't think they mean it as like a homophobic joke particularly. It's just uh, No, yeah, it's not just at outrageous. all. It's just outrageous, yeah. And hilarious.
2: Yeah. And I that like, doesn't George Siegel say something like, didn't yeah. you notice? Oh, and I, but Ron Lyman says <laughs> <laughs> it was dark. He, no, Ron Ron it was Lyman, dark here, at first. Here's
0: Ron, Ron Lyman's line, another one of the best lines <laughs> in this whole movie. It was dark and I was terribly excited. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So yes, yeah, so so the male cop that uh Ron Liebman forced himself on is so uh enchanted by their encounter, he sends roses to Ron Liebman in jail and says, I'm not gonna press charges. Leave your uh name. Another with brilliant. The next
2: and he. Thank you for and yeah. this is,
1: thank you for a wonderful. He's evening.
2: so enraptured with those roses as well, isn't yeah. he? <laughs> he's just so like, you know.
0: Oh, that's the that's the line for Ron Liebman's character. When George Siegel throws the roses out of the thing, that's it for Ron Liebman. He's like, Fuck you, I'm out of your life. I can't <laughs> believe you did that. He's devastated. He's holding on to those sandsy And you talk
1: believe. about the casual asides at one point he goes, Should I should I leave my name? Should I call yeah. him? See, I
2: wouldn't I wouldn't have said it was homophobic in that way because when he finds out it's a man, it's just like totally no big deal. Yeah. No, right. no, it's absolutely. not like, uh, or, and in fact, right. he's flattered that this guy sent yeah, him yeah. roses and just treats it like a romantic encounter. But Karl Ye- Reiner can yeah. always be very complicated, I think, yeah. as could Mel Brooks. Oh. <laughs> so uh, then we have Vincent
1: Gardenia. Yes. Uh, as this bizarre football coach who kidnaps children for his football
0: team. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, what? He, you know <laughs> who he reminded him. me of? <laughs> oh. There's a character in Ren and Stimpy. I think his name is Anthony's George dad Liquor. or something. Oh, George Licker. Doesn't George Gardenia Liquor, yeah. looks exactly like that guy? Like sure. they modeled yeah. that after yeah. Gardenia in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. George Licker, yeah.
2: Yeah, he just steals these Mexican kids who can't yeah. speak English. <laughs> <First> football team. <laughs> And again,
1: it's just these layers. Just
2: as a aside. And, <laughs> yeah,
1: and believe it or not, it's all subtle. Yeah. Despite the stuff we're like talking about, it's it just it it, it just organic and subtle.
2: Yeah, because uh, that's not may- even the main focus of that scene. The scene is that George Siegel is about to have a nervous breakdown because he has Yes, he's, he's
1: had it. He's battered. He's brutalized he's exhausted yeah
2: and so he's sort of falling asleep he's supposed to be you know defending this guy and that the whole football team thing's just going on in the background and you're just like it's so funny yeah (laughs) and then the film does this
0: very what to me feels like a very, very modern joke, which I don't I can't think of examples from before this and I can't think of other examples of this kind of humor for another twenty years. And now it's like everyone does it. Which is this Jack Benny bit that they do when he steps out of the he steps out of the courtroom and sees Trish Vanderveer's hanging out outside the courtroom and they start having a conversation. She tells him that she's flying home and he says, Where is that? And she says, Waukegan well, Illinois. And George C. Right says, isn't that where Jack Benny is from? And she says, yes. And then the security guard sort of steps into their conversation and says, didn't they name a high school after him? And then Trish Vanderveer says, no, it's a junior high school. And the guard says, oh, OK, I thought it was a high school, which is just this very weird sort of like total non sequitur thing Um which I feel like happens in movies all the fucking time now, where and, and TV shows and everything. That's that's yeah. humor, like just sort of this weird sort of like, we're, we're stopping the movie dead in its tracks yeah. to just do this thing which is going to lead nowhere. It's just this right. sort of mildly funny sort of bizarre thing where, where everyone sort of drops the pretense of their characters and just sort of like has this goofy conversation about some piece of trivia, which is very yeah, funny. Say, well, me and Mike
2: actually railed against this very thing when we talked about you know how comedy became too self-aware yes absolutely and and then it gets to the point where it's every five minutes there's a pop culture reference and Mm -hmm. no one can have a fucking conversation without having to making all these references to other things
1: right and essentially as you said stopping it and injecting some very uh, winky kind of almost surreal point because it's so Mike when which you isn't it how today, this
2: is done no, that's yeah. not how it's done here it's it's done the right way because right oh completely it doesn't yeah. grind everything down to a halt.
1: no but Mike no. when you watch it I also it today, think it's, it's, a, it's a nod to you know they love Jack Benny so much I and mean, was such a good friend with him that I think it was a nod to him, too. Just a little... If we're going to do this weird gag, let's let's throw one to Jack.
0: But did it strike you, watching it today, Mike, that this was, like, a weird, like, for its time, strange thing to have put oh, into this absolutely, movie? absolutely,
1: yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm glad you... I, I didn't write it down, but I'm glad you reminded me of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so this leads, of course, to Mama being put in the home and the ending that is not the original ending of the movie. Um... You know, it kind of has a happy ending, as it is in the the commercial version, Um, or the version that was released to theaters, where, after all this rigmarole with, uh, oh, uh, uh, Paul Sorvino is the guy running the home. Amazing. That was his (laughs) debut, too. As just the worst asshole you could imagine running an old age home,
0: just Paul Paul Sorvino has never been funnier, and again, playing it totally straight. Like there's no, yeah, yeah. nobody's leaning into
1: the idea that this is a comedy. You think, think of the Italian dads we grew up with. Ben. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. That level of rage as just <laughs> the baseline of existence. Yeah. <laughs> and that's it and then finally yeah george uh, he finds an old man and uh dumps mama and uh he says here's papa the thing oh, the, the yeah. thing
2: is that made this more surreal for me is my own grandmother who we lost last year god bless her she um she had alzheimers and kind of went mm-hmm. downhill over the space of a decade and I look back on some... Because I used to care for her before she went into a home. And I look back on some of the episodes that we had with her while she was, you know, kind of going into dementia. And I can laugh at them, which probably sounds like a really horrible thing to say. But, like, the time she told this cop to fuck off and interrupted a drugs (laughs) raid because she wanted the disabled parking... Or, you know, the time she accused this doctor of sexually assaulting her because he was taking a temperature. And Ruth Gordon in this film just reminded me of, of my nan in that way so much because she my nan would, before she totally went downhill, would also play on it and you know she would get people running around she she got banned from bingo in the end for being so abusive to everyone <laughs> oh, and <gosh. laughs> you know she was great but um and it also reminded me of there was when she went into the home there was a woman in the room next door who used to come in at intervals and accuse my nan of having a Husband, he died years ago. It wasn't in the home, under a bed or in the wardrobe. So you'd be round there having <laughs> a chat, and this woman sure. would come up, Where is he? And she'd start opening the wardrobe, and my nana'd be like, He's dead, you bitch. Get out, you're crazy. <laughs> like, and all this would be going on. And the energy in that film just totally reminds me of that, which, you know, because it is really sad when, when, you know, people you care about, like your parents or your grandparents' age, but you get this like, Totally absolute surreal, you know, looking at George Segal and I love my Nan to bits, you know, and I miss her. But when she, you know, I was caring for her, she would ring me up and I live down the road from her. Can you go and get me some marmalade? This would be like ten ten times a day, and I wasn't yeah. living if I'd lived if I'd been living with her, I probably would have put an ape suit on. She said, Go and get me some marmalade. <laughs> and I go down the shop and I say, Any type of marmalade, are you sure? And she'd be like, yeah, yeah, anything. And I'd I'd go get this marmalade. And she'd be like, it's the wrong one. And I'd be like George (laughs) Segal, like in the kitchen. like. Like, (laughs) And the best time was when this old guy, which felt like a scene from Where's Papa, the guy, Bob, her sort of neighbour who lived over the way when she was in the bungalow, he comes walking in one day and he was like, fucking hell, Ruby, I thought you were dead. And it turns <laughs> out that some woman was trying to arrange community bingo and they're all in their 90s, right? And somebody says, my nan, oh, I think Ruby's dead because she'd been in hospital recently. And um, and he's like, oh, this woman rang up at the bingo and thought you were dead. And my my nan's like, get out, get out, <laughs> you know, waving this stick. And this guy's like, and and I was like, "Why are you angry? You're not dead. Like, why are you angry?" <laughs> and this poor. So, I don't know if Reiner had any experience of like the absurdity of you know just being in that situation because people think when you care for somebody, it's this wonderful, beautiful, nurturing experience. And I also oh, used sure. to work in care work with. Uh, usually older people who were at least 85 was possibly my youngest right. client. They don't want you there. You remind them that they are old and need help. Right. So you go into that work thinking you're going to be welcome with open arms and you're going to be sat there sharing toffees with this lovely old lady <laughs> who's going to be so happy. And what you get is like, get out of my house, you know, don't touch that. Right. You know, it's that sort of... And I wonder, because there are elements in where's popper if you can see why Reef gordon doesn't want the interference and why she wants to keep things her own way and why because nobody wants to age and so you know if you just looked at the synopsis i guess that sort of thing is seen as cruel now Oh, you shouldn't do that but the reality is when you're trapped in that situation no matter how much you love someone you know, there would be times with my nan where I would just be, you know, having to scream into a pillow because she would do the sort of Ruth Gordon things. You know, she never bit my ass, thank God. But, you know, <laughs> no, she I, would I, be disruptive. If I had planned, oh she would phone me up or she would, oh, I need you to come now. And I'd go there and it'd be nothing. And I, I would be like George Segal. I'd just be like, oh, you know, and he... And I just totally related to that character. I wanted to drop that in. People probably think hey, I'm horrible, now. <laughs>
1: but no, no. no. But, but yeah. I think that the
0: George Seagal's the combination of his resignation and his impatience and his anger is is so totally real and so totally believable. And it's the key to why this movie works. And it's the key to the but it's the key to what he, makes it so
2: funny. But he also loves her. Yes. and and that's sure, absolutely. The, the thing that's why i think if it'd been any anyone else i don't know if it would work but seagull he was just so good at comedy but he had that jack lemon thing like he was mm-hmm. a nice guy but who was mm-hmm. also passive aggressive and would lose yes. it and and so even when he like with Jack Lemon, even when Jack Lemon's being a being an asshole and like the out of towners, you can't totally hate him. And I think Siegel had that even more than Jack Lemmon he was just so good at comedy and I also um, think it's,
0: it's helpful and important for us to see that Ruth Gordon feels like she's got a good thing going I mean she does well, have she her has. own little life she's watching TV <laughs> right. all day yeah. she's totally into those shows and she's reacting with her hands and she's doing little dances right. and she's just having a wonderful daily life and her she, wardrobe,
2: loves
1: her. Yeah, she putting loves her on wardrobe. those strange yep.
2: clothes <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and eating having and, her Pepsi yeah. <laughs> and uh,
1: Lucky Charms
2: yeah and she doesn't want anyone to come into that and um and so even when he's trying to kill her you can just see it's not he still loves her like and obviously he still he promised the father that's the, the main joke he promised the father he wouldn't sure. put her in a home so he, he, he's constantly you know he keeps almost saying it but he can't bring himself to say it because he's made this promise and so he has to look after So it does have this sweetness to it, I think, as well. Like, underneath all the rape jokes and the, you know, people, the <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Mexican kids being kid, like it does have a sort of sweetness to it as well. And there's, yeah.
0: I mean and it's True. wonderful even the depiction of the black guys in central park they are they are sort of the the most articulate people in the movie and they're also and it also quickly there's this great so there's some of the great comic timing and editing in this movie, it, it, it happens Ron Liebman is naked in George Siegel's apartment he has to go back home and he says, do you have anything I could wear? And boom! Like, you don't even have a chance to take half a breath and it cuts to Liebman in the gorilla costume outside <laughs> yeah. the thing which is a great thing and you can imagine people howling with laughter in the theater but, and, and the fact is there's no way they would even be done laughing by the time the next bit rolls around, which is the black woman trying to hail a cab, and then the cab passing her by so it can pick up this lunatic in a gorilla costume rather than <laughs> pick <laughs> up a black person, um, which is which is wonderful that they were able to stack these jokes one on top of another so that you know the audience must have been breathless by the time that happens. But it's also this great sort of social satire thing that they that 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 Reiner is you know careful to get in there you know so that, the, that the, it's not that the only black people in this movie are the muggers. There's there's also this other represent of how fucked up things are in New York. I
2: wanted wanted to say something actually about Seagull because he had like a lot of uh, scope to be involved in the script and like literally had so much creative input. But when you think about Seagull, he was one of the first kind of Hollywood actors that was able to be the leading man and the romantic lead as a jewish man without having to do a tony curtis or oh, you know yeah.
1: interesting um
2: yeah. one of the first like dustin hoffman was probably the first in the graduate i was trying to think you know was there before that you could have a jewish person in comedy as long as they were you know the butt end of the joke or whatever which i guess george siegel kind of is in in this but not in a lot of his other films
1: but, yeah and a bloom in love and, and uh, Touch for Class, yeah, yeah he
2: you know the 70s which he called the testosterone her own years which i know <laughs> you know he came up through the 60s in supporting roles and he does things like king rat and then he goes slightly into comedy so he did bye bye braverman the sydney lumet and also right. who's afraid of virginia Woolf, which is just an incredible film where he's part of, but that's all to do with richard burton and elizabeth mm-hmm. taylor and by the 70s and where's Popper? is like possibly one of the first of those roles he becomes like top star top billing leading man you know he's in some incredible films through that period as a jewish man and in bye bye braveman and where's popper it's all about being jewish and this is before woody allen starts doing the jewish thing which was you know when you consider how much jewishness was suppressed by hollywood you know, and like Kirk Douglas, Tony Curtis, you know, it's like sure. you yeah. you can have the keys Carrie to the glance. castle, yeah. uh, but you have to, you know, change your name. You can't be Jewish. And, you know, George Siegel was one of the first. You've got Elliot Gould as well, Dustin Hoffman, come out of that generation. Hollywood totally changed. And then Woody Allen obviously comes along and just defines that whole... And I just... You know, George Siegel was just wonderful just for that alone. The fact that I think he said when he, when he first wanted to sort of, you know, be an actor in Hollywood, he was told to get a nose job and change his name. And he said this Jewish uh, agent said this to him. He had a big nose. He said he was very, very Jewish. And he thought, <laughs> no, if you're telling me that, I'm going to do the opposite i'm going to do the opposite and the fact that he made it in where's popper is such a quote-unquote jewish film as well you know it's so anti-hollywood in that way because they you know considering how much of hollywood was owned by jewish you know came out of the the jewish background with studio bosses and the way the studios are that, that, after the Hayes Code, was totally kind of... Because it was Catholicism against the Jewishness, wasn't it? The the, yeah. the Catholic Legion of De- Decency and all the people who were rallying for the code were like, it's the Jewish in Hollywood and there, you know, it's Babylon down there and there, you know. So Jewishness was wiped out of Hollywood film for generations. So where's Popper Just on that alone, it's like a really kind of to just get a comedy film and just make it outwardly Jewish. Well, you know, with yeah. George Siegel's the Shmuel character, you know, and all the stereotypes <laughs> and everything is it's just glorious. I think it, it's a great point, and and
0: and something in a, in a minute, I'm going to read you uh, a bunch of newspaper ads of the movies that we're showing in New York that. The day that Where's Papa opened. And one of them is Owl and the Pussycat, which also starred George Siegel.
2: Oh, I love right. that film. And I love that film. George
0: Siegel and Barbara Streisand and written by Buck Henry, right. although based on a on a stage play from the mid sixties, I think, or even early sixties. Um but that's a film that's interesting to compare and contrast with Where's Papa because I don't – because George Siegel doesn't – I don't think you identify his character as Jewish. Barbara Streisand spends the first half of that movie, and she plays a hooker uh, who gets kicked out of her apartment because George Siegel has complained about um, – her being a hooker in 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 their apartment complex um making too much noise or something um while he's trying to write he's like a failed writer uh but she keeps accusing him uh, him of being gay and i actually spent the first half of this movie thinking okay this is interesting this is a movie about this gay guy and um and this hooker um but they totally abandon that and the whole second half of the movie is sort of just you know the, their burgeoning romance and it turns out that he's not gay. Um, And they just sort of drop that whole sort of plot point entirely, which is actually kind of good because it's mostly – Barbara Streisand's character saying a bunch of homophobic things for the first forty-five minutes of the movie.
2: I was going, "Oh, I love that film! No, yeah, right. I love that film!"
0: because no. um, he's the right, same
2: no. character. He's that downtrodden sort of he, particular.
0: He, he's fussier. He, he, he is. He's he is that ca- he's sort of that character out on his own after, like, if Trish Vanderveer has left him and he doesn't have his mom to deal with anymore, he, and he's moved into this yeah. small little apartment. It is true that it's kind of like that. But one thing that I learned that was really interesting was that the original show the broadway show the original cast was alan alda in the um and this was in 1964 alan alda in the george siegel role but that the pussycat character was played by the black actress singer diana sands and that many subsequent productions followed this precedent so it was an inter this whole story on Broadway it was about this interracial couple. And that's the thing that they totally dropped for this movie. So it's interesting that that Siegel is in this one Hollywood movie with Barbara Streisand uh, where they've sort of shed all of the sort of interesting um, identity, politics, racial aspects of the, of the production. And then he quickly is in this where every... Every uh, every barricade is broken through and and every line <laughs> yeah. crossed.
2: Well, his, his character in No Way to Treat a Lady, which was, mm. what, a year before, two years before this, mm. is a kind of a predecessor yeah. to his character in Where's Popper in that he's a cop, but he's a Jewish cop. So there are all these jokes again about him being Jewish and, oh, well, you don't look like a cop and... You know all this stuff <laughs> as cops, and I think there's even a line in it about well, you 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 have to be Irish if you're a cop, you know, and and right. his mother in that is just she is like the stereotypical very kind of. Um, overbearing Jewish mother who constantly, like there's, there's so many scenes with them having breakfast and she's just, you know, having a go at him, telling him how useless he is and what a rubbish job he's got and how he shouldn't be a cop. He's never going to get a woman and his brother, his brother's a doctor. And, you know, it's that. Um, even though he he is more Rod Steiger's film, I think oh, yeah. that is like a... Like a bit of a predecessor to this. But then, of course, uh, Ruth Gordon doesn't play it that way in the stereotypical way. Right. She does something far more imaginative with her little games, <laughs> which I really, really like. It's far more subtle because you just know she's totally doing that on purpose. Yeah. Well, it was an interesting time in Hollywood for that George Siegel and
0: Elliot Gould were both allowed to be leading men, but also that they could go back and forth. From playing sort of more traditional leading men in romantic films, but then at yeah. the same time, do a whole bunch of films where they were much closer to being these schlubbier, more unkempt, almost like a Peter Falk as Columbo kind of thing, which is sure. sort yeah. of more what George Siegel does in that movie Roller Coaster, which I love and we should do one time on this uh, on this podcast. Yeah. And what Elliot yeah. Gould goes back and forth from doing all the time, too. Elliot Gould is either like the coolest guy in the room or like, you know, the slobbiest guy in the room. On what right. movie he's in?
1: You think of yeah, him as Philip Marlowe in the Walk <laughs>
0: right? Apply, yeah. And but also I think what might be a really good double feature. We were talking about doing Capricorn One, but if we did Capricorn One, where Elliot Gould is sort of the slovenly reporter slash um, yeah. detective, reporter, yeah. and then George Segal and Coaster, who also is sort of like the inspector.
2: Oh, yeah, perfect. Okay, yeah. thanks, Cat, for for That's pointing great. us down that path. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, don't forget George Seagull and *Bloom in Love*, which might just—I mean, you know, there's a odd without spoiling that film. There's a a rape connection in Mm. that as well, which is just insane. But I think he was just thinking. To go back to what you were saying at the beginning, Ben, about your (laughs) friend—call anyone who had those opinions a friend—not liking George Seagal. He was one of the most (laughs) interesting actors you know in the 70s especially in the comedy and he loved comedy like he but he was so good at comedy and drama like Jack Lemmon
1: um, yeah and it's something that I mean at, at an interesting time and when I tell like so my brother is six years younger than I am and I tell him that when I was a little kid George Siegel and Elliot Gould were the two hottest superstars in Hollywood and he can't believe it
2: but they were and it, and
1: it changed so quickly yeah, yeah yeah
2: they were and when you consider you know this is, like, totally against what the system had been before of eradicating Jewishness, and then you get... And right. even Dustin Hoffman, right. you know, as a leading man, as just as Dustin Hoffman, like, is incredible. And it was a short period, I think. yeah. And then Woody Allen took over and, you know, only really lasted for that decade, maybe into the yeah. early 80s. Yeah, just the
1: 70s, yeah. Which is why we do a uh, podcast about that decade.
0: So this thing that we call Where's Papa opened in New York to a ridiculous review from the New York Times, which doesn't mention Rod Lehman and Slag's Ruth Gordon. Um, I, I can't even get into it, but I guess it makes sense in a way. Uh, movies are never appreciated. So somebody said recently that you can't judge a movie until it's at least 10 years old.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I would
0: agree. Uh, But this opened November 11th. Wednesday, November 11th, 1970. Um, So I don't know if they were doing like Christmas,
1: Thanksgiving releases back then. But it's interesting that this opened in November. They used to do Wednesday. Wednesdays used to be the the big opening. Oh, not Fridays? Not Fridays. That changed later. But yeah, initially Wednesdays. All
0: right. So in the New York Times, I'm looking at ads for the following movies, and we can talk about if we've seen these movies, and also I think it, it, I think it helps to sort of set the context as to what sort of cinematic environment these movies arrived into. So at the UA Rivoli and the fine arts was something called Cromwell, starring Richard Harris and Alec Guinness in Cromwell. I have seen Cromwell for heavy metal movies I watched. It. Yeah. How did it rate on the heavy metal scale?
1: It was boring, <laughs> <laughs> but... But it had some real metal shit in it, like Cromwell himself and his helmet. And, cat, know, cat, have and you seen Cromwell?
2: No, okay. no.
1: Now here's a movie that I'm gonna
0: come clean. Now this is a this is a dark admission for me to make. This is a movie that I have never made it through, and I've tried to many times. And for some reason, right. I just can't get past the first ten minutes of this movie. Hope maybe you two can talk me into it. Um, the Twelve Chairs. Mel Brooks I have also not I've never not seen, seen it Alright thank you I've thank never good. seen right, it I'm so glad I thought
2: it was going to be some like huge classic How is it possible then- that
0: the three of us None of us have seen the 12 chairs I've never made it through What is? Yeah, but do you know anyone through. who stands by the 12 chairs No Because I feel like my dad no. was a big fan of the 12 chairs
1: um, I think Danny Peary mm-hmm. liked it Um because his, his whole thing is that he thought Blazing Saddles actually ruined Mel Brooks. Because then he just started making parodies. And this, that's an argument mm-hmm. to be made. But, um... So he thought the 12 Chairs was at least original. But I, I don't know anybody who's actually watched the whole thing. So. All
0: right. Maybe we need to assign ourselves to You'll get someone watch right some
2: in now and. and
0: oh, please, you'll always. You'll get someone yeah.
2: right in now and go, actually. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. No, yes. I think
0: it's a movie that has many, many proponents, but I, I'm just not. I just. Sure. Yeah. I don't know, you know, and. Uh, it was available on TV a lot in the seventies. Growing a up, lot? and I yeah. sat down, having seen Blazing Saddles, having been a big Mel Brooks fan. You know, Young Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. So blah, I, blah, don't blah. Added,
2: I don't even know if it had. I don't even know if it had a release over here. I don't know. We had Blazing Saddles. We had Young Frankenstein. We had like the big ones, but. I don't know. I'm probably talking out of my backside now. It probably had like a huge theatrical release. <laughs> but The Twelve but
0: Chairs is before The Producers, right? No. I think it's right after. Oh, now. really? Is, producers
2: yeah. is 68. 68 is the producer. yes, oh, okay. 68. Yeah. The year so, that, was, and that
0: was. That was his so first. So Twelve yeah. Chairs is his follow-up to The Producers. Exactly. Well, there's something that I want us to get into and we can get into in the second half of this thing when we talk about The Jerk. The in, one of the most interesting things to me in looking at how Carl Reiner bookended the 70s with Where's Papa and The Jerk was the fact that he didn't actually do anything for a long time after Where's Papa. It's wild, isn't it? The yeah. next movie he directed was Oh God in 77. Or 76? 77, 77. yeah. yeah. So it's like seven years. And I thought, oh, he must have gotten involved in a television show or something. But it doesn't really seem like it. Does anybody know what he was doing for the next six years afterwards,
1: Papa? He was always on TV. I feel like he was on variety shows. There was the 2,000-year-old man special, the cartoon. They were doing that. They put out a new 2,000-year-old man album. I remember when we were kids. Hmm. Probably involved with "Free to Be You and Me" to some degree. Sure, <laughs> Which, sure. I don't know if you know that cat. "Free to Be You and Me" no. that was like the oh my god feminist like uh, sort of re-education for gender. Dynamics in America in the 70s.
2: No, I, I don't, Created don't. by
1: Marlo Thomas.
0: Still and a major part of our Passover Freedom Seder every year at, at Casa Riser. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, okay, so here's an advertisement for a movie, and I swear to God, I don't even know what movie this is, but all the, all the ad says is, Sinatra is Dirty Dingus McGee. He, he's <laughs> sort of a cowboy. It's kind of a Western. <laughs> What's the, n- is it called Dirty Dingus McGee?
1: It's called Dirty Dingus I've McGee. I've never even heard of this fucking and,
2: movie. What the hell are they never... Dirty Dingus <laughs> McGee?
1: <laughs> it's a comedy western, and I've never seen it, but my friend Peter Landau had that poster framed on his wall for 25 years. So. Has he seen it? I think he has, yeah. Yeah. All right. We'll, we'll get Landau on the horn. Here's
0: a movie, Mike. Uh,
1: yes. Sexual Practices in Sweden. Okay, so that was a knockoff of sexual practices in Denmark, which was, a, you know, an adults-only documentary that had busted the box office, part of the porn chic, paving the way for Deep Throat and my undoing as a human being. So,
0: Okay, here's a great double feature that was playing all over the place at American International Showcase Theaters, Count Yorga Vampire and The Crimson Cult. I've not seen the Crimson Cult. I've certainly seen Count Yorga. Crimson Cult is Boris Karloff and Christopher Lee.
2: It's yeah. not very good. <laughs> it's that latter end of the career. Oh,
1: yeah, yeah. The, the hammer, yeah.
2: But Count Yorga is fabulous.
1: Yes, Count Yorga's great.
2: Count Yorga uh. was really influential on how vampire films changed everyone went swinging after Count Yorga. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, they yeah, what's
1: the Christopher Lee, the... Uh... Dracula AD
2: 1972, that's which it. Well, that's I it, that's love, it, yes, yes. but I get yes, every time I have to talk about that, I always seem to be stacking it off because it is so square and ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the joy. Of and, it. Yeah. I, you know, the Hammer fans don't like it. They're always like, she's attacking it again. But it's just <sighs> really silly. You've got Stephanie Beecham saying things like to Peter Cushion, who's just deadpan serious, you know. It's the first grandpa. And it's just like, who wrote this fucking script? No one spoke like that. <laughs> it's terrible in some ways. But then you've got Johnny Alucard, who is like... You know, the kind of libertine. And he's like one of yes. the best Hammer characters, this young sort Absolutely. of... Absolutely. You yeah. know, ha- but he hangs around in coffee shops. Like, he doesn't even do drugs. That's Hammer for you. <laughs> they hang around in coffee shops in the 70s and then have satanic orgies. Well, that was sex. like the, pro-
1: the process church. You familiar with them?
2: I a, f- a guy actually came to film me I you know, became friendly with uh, Neil Edwards that she made a film about the Process Church which I need to watch. He gave me a copy of it.
1: Yeah, they're fascinating. But they were they were uh centred in London and they ran coffee shops. They did their weird little uh Abraxas uh, praising rituals in their coffee shop.
2: Well, AD seventy two was based on the Highgate Vampire story. Oh, that's right, that's right, that's right. That's where right. the people that's thought right. yes. this real vampire was yeah. hanging around in Highgate Cemetery. Yeah. And there was this guy whose name I can't remember. He was quoted in loads of press articles. You know, he was like a vamp, called himself a vampire hunter. And would be like the expert on this, like Turkish <laughs> vampire, and people thought this was real. ITV went down there to film it. People were turning wow. up. Not much of that's in the film, though, because Christopher Lee just kind of hangs around in a graveyard. But it was, it, it was based on the success of yoga. and they were like, we need a right. British yoga. so. Uh, they based it around the Highgate vampire things, which is like, if you see all the old press reports, they're insane yeah. that people actually believe this stuff.
1: I wrote about them for Crime
2: Feed. They're incredible. The
1: Highgate, yeah. <laughs> the amazing story, yes. All right, here's a movie. All right. Uh, here's a pull
0: quote from Life Magazine. A movie of such elegance and profundity that I wish I could see his 16 previous films over again in its light. And this is an ad for Cla- Claude Chabrols. This man must die. A movie oh. I've never
2: seen. Have you seen it? Chabrol. Yeah, Chabrol's amazing. I love Chabrol. They call him the French Hitchcock, but he's so not anything like it's just cuz he did thrillers. He he was like right. the um he was the commercial one to come out of the French New Wave. So the art holes kind of go, oh, yeah, he was the commercial one. Oh, yeah. One.
0: No, I've seen um, Chabral films. I've just never heard of yeah, this. One.
2: But, yeah, but yeah, no. I don't know that one. It's he, he, not one of his best, but I love everything that he did to some extent so i'm probably the most unbiased person to ask <laughs> okay, if i love a, something i love something
0: here's a movie i that started the same day as where's papa that i admit i've never heard of uh the terror is close and real is one pull quote and another one is it takes up where baby jane and aunt alice left off wait till you meet Girlie. <laughs> the
1: movie's girly that film
2: is amazing is it
1: I don't know girly at all. So the
2: British title is oh god it's like memmy uh, girly sunny oh, I can't remember the British title but it was it was girly. So right. It is um it's just really fucked up. I don't even know how <laughs> to describe it. It is um it's just is this really fucked up sort of horror thriller. A bit of a sp- Spider-Baby riff, actually, is the closest thing it wow. comes to. In that you have this uh, family of aristocrats, although well, they're quite well-to-do. They seem to have a big house. And the, the children who were grown up act like little kids. So they skip around all day and they play these silly games, but they also kill people. Um, and wow. it came out in blue, on Blu-ray in America about five years ago. It was like one of those total limited... Edition, so I right. couldn't I couldn't get a copy of it. But this is a little smudgy, but
0: is it directed yeah. by Freddie Francis?
2: Yeah, and I was going to say oh. it's, a Fred- oh, wow. it's a Freddie Francis oh. film, and I don't think it's had like a decent release here. But it is it's a bonkers film. I don't even know what genre you would. Call that wow! It's, so
1: we got to look that up. I, i'm I, you please. know, it's amazing. We still learn things all the time. Yeah, please.
2: Great. It's uh, it's just such a stress. Have you got the British title of it there, Ben? Is it Memzy Good? It's it's a really crazy long title. Um, messed up. I'd I'd just say it was like a gothic, erotic thriller. Maybe. Wow. Yeah, but now it's, Mike. It, Yes. It was playing
0: it opened at one, two, three, four, five, six theaters in Brooklyn, of which I've only ever heard of two of them. Uh, right, it was them playing at the Kenmore and at the okay, Georgetown at, of right, at the Georgetown. Those two I've heard of. Which I went to a lot, the Georgetown. Right, right me too. But it was also at the RKO Albee. Don't know it. The RKO Diker. I uh, don't know it. The Arcae, right. Like a whole, heights, the, right, yeah. sure, but the RKO Madison? Never heard of that. Right. <laughs> and yeah. Centuries
1: Mayfair.
2: I've never heard never of any of these of goddamn that. movie
1: theaters. That's the kind of nitty-gritty we get Do you down. know, down we down. get we <laughs> get like
2: one we get like one cinema per town or maybe oh, yeah. two you guys though it's like one on the corner of every fucking no, yeah, by the we way were, yeah, we- that, <laughs> yeah,
0: that was just Brooklyn I, it was also Manhattan
1: Queens the Bronx like where we grew up in Flatbush we, we could have walked to like tens yeah. of
2: we had like one in Cheltenham yeah. where I grew up the Odeon and whatever they were showing that was it you were stuck with it basically uh. it's like yeah um, also playing
0: was Ryan's daughter which I've never seen Never saw it. The uh, David Lean
1: movie.
2: Yeah, Yeah. I haven't seen that one.
0: Here's a movie that was playing that I know you've never seen, Mike, because you mentioned you haven't recently. Little Foss and Big Halsey.
1: (laughs) No, never saw it because Michael J. Pollard gives me the creeps (laughs) in an unpleasant way. (laughs) Uh,
0: Starting today, starting the same day, uh, Marlon Brando in Burn. Never seen it.
1: I have seen Burn because it's in the Danny Peary cult movies book. It is a
2: bummer. I haven't seen Burn, actually. Yeah. That yeah, was it's when it's he was drag. in his slump period, wasn't it?
1: Yes, yeah. I oh. think he directed it, did he not?
2: Did he Maybe direct not. it? I don't know.
1: Uh, I don't, I don't know. Know. He was in a
2: weird, drag, weird part of his career then. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh
0: No, I don't... uh it doesn't say. It doesn't even say who directed this thing. Um, Catch Twenty Two was in its twenty first Smash Week.
1: Wow. He and I've certainly seen that. He and
0: she was in its fourteenth incredible smash week.
1: That was the name of a sitcom starring uh, Richard Benjamin and Paul Apprentice. Was it based on the I don't think movie? that was the movie spinoff. Uh-huh. No, I don't think so. Well, that's something Cat and I talk about. I'm fascinated, like, the Steptoe and Son movies right. and things like that. Wow. Everything Very British phenomenon.
2: Everything out to have a movie. No. Yeah. Uh,
0: here's a movie I've never heard of, starring Marcello Mastroianni and Monica Vitti. Cat's heard of it. Um, and it says, you don't need to be Italian to appreciate the pizza triangle. <laughs>
2: That is one Marcello film I haven't seen. I wonder what the alternative title is.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I agree with the sentiment regardless. Yeah, Yeah, I know. Uh, I've seen a lot of
2: Marcello films, but not that one. In fact, I don't even think I've got it. I went on like this crusade to get every Marcello film that I could get my hands on. Unless I'm probably, I've probably got it under some... Italian title and I know the film really well. By but.
0: the way, it should come as no surprise but Giancarlo Giannini is also in that movie.
2: Oh no, oh. it's Jealousy Italian style. Yes, okay. I have seen that. It's great. All right. <laughs> the Pizza <laughs> Triangle. <For God.
1: laughs> that was especially titled for New York. A
2: Tori Scola who's like just a fucking legend. Yeah, it's really good that one. I love Giancarlo Giannini. Here's the a double feature that was... <laughs> A double feature that
0: appears to be X-rated, both of these movies, and it was playing. They were playing at the at among other theaters, the Nostrand. Uh, oh, hey, that was our main theater as kids. The yeah. curious, I didn't know they played X. The curious female and Witchcraft
1: seventy was a double oh, feature. Oh, I've seen them both. They're they're soft X. They're uh, non-penetrative. Right,
2: Is Witchcraft seventy, that mockumentary. Yes. One? Yeah. But yeah. I think the BFI just released that on Blu-ray. Oh, oh no, a, I think you're right. I think you're which right. Which was yeah. like, yeah, with um, yeah. Anton LaVey's in it. Yes.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. At, at the
0: Paris was um, Sydney Glazier presents Maximilian Schell's First Love. Don't
1: know. With a rave,
0: rave, rave review by Rex Reed.
1: I know First Love with uh, Susan Day and William Catt. Yeah, that's not this one.
0: Um, Starts today, but this must have been a re-release. It's a mad, 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 mad world all over the place. I've certainly seen that. Um, Five Easy Pieces was playing at the Midwood.
1: Oh, how about that? Hmm. A masterpiece.
0: At at Radio City Music Hall, Billy Wilder's The Private Life of Sherlock Holmes.
2: I love that film. Good movie. Yeah, good movie. It's been rediscovered now. Mark Gattis has said, you know, it inspired this Sherlock series. Oh, now how about all the that? haters are like suddenly like, yes, yeah, great. <laughs> but at the time it was always like I tried to put it in a in a list for a very uh high kind of highly regarded publication and they were like, Why are you putting this in here? And it's, like, it's it's great. It's like gay drug binging Sherlock Holmes God's sake (laughs) it's like yeah but it's not one of his best
0: and finally as I mentioned before The Owl and the Pussycat um, oh yes
1: which is covered in rave reviews
2: I love that film me too come on loved it as
1: a kid when I discovered it and couldn't believe what I was seeing on television
2: I think it's
0: good I don't think it holds up the way What's Up Dot does and I don't think it holds up the way Where's Papa does but it's alright
2: oh I really like that scene when gotta he's, revisit the scene yeah. when he's trying to sleep and she's just talking shit him and he's just, oh <laughs> yeah. come on it's amazing and, <laughs> and she's just kind shanks. of worth it
0: it's worth it for her outfit alone with the hands on her and, and that
2: pa- and that's what I couldn't believe Barbara Streisand is supposed to be a porn actress for fuck's sake that's right that, what's that, 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 that killed film me that he goes to see what's it called bike bicycle, bike sluts or something it's so, called like, Biker's <laughs> from, yeah, like biker sluts come on but it's kind or, yeah. of
0: heartbreaking that we don't Psycho that they sluts. don't show yeah. us any of it. Like you don't even get like an even glimpse of the Yeah, screen. but that's the best so
2: part because well, uh, to me, I, yeah, then they discuss it and it. it's like yeah. sort of suggesting stuff, and you're all kind of like, come on, it's good.
0: Yeah, I still wanted to see one shot. <laughs> 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 and I wish, and, and if Barbara Streisand had done it in blackface, it would have been much more true to me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> good
1: lord. <laughs> All right, so uh, I think so this that's is going to wrap up part one of our tribute to Carl Miner <laughs> Yeah, I think we all need to go to the bathroom. Okay, yeah, you want to take a, a cup of tea or something? Yeah. Oh, you can take I a make moment? a cup
2: of tea? Is that okay? Make some
1: tea, please. Yeah.
2: I'm drying out.